Welcome to Coaching Origins. I'm Jeff Bidwell. Today we talk with South Alabama head coach Richie Riley. The Kentucky native's journey has taken him all over the place, from Georgetown, Kentucky, to Hawaii Pacific, Pikeville, Coastal Carolina, Eastern Kentucky, UAB, Clemson, and then at just 33 years old, Riley got his first Division I head coaching job at Nichols. Here's Coaching Origins with Richie Riley. In doing my research on you, uh, this was one of the one of the great tidbits I've seen of, of all the coaches I've talked to. You're eight years old, and you ask for a dry erase board so you can draw up plays on the playground. What in the world was going through your eight year old mind that that was uh, that was that was a path you wanted to go down? That, that's a true story. Some people think I make it up when I when I tell that story, but it's true. I. Um... I knew I wanted to coach at a young age, which is kind of weird. You know, most people dream of being an NBA player or you know, whatever it is, some wild dream. But I, I actually wanted to be a high school coach in Kentucky. Um, that was my dream from the time I was eight years old to probably the time I was like 19. Um, so I asked my parents. They didn't even know what it was. My dad's an electrician. My mom was stay-at-home mom. Um Worked a nine to five a little bit when I was younger and I had to explain what it was. And back then you didn't have internet. So I couldn't like pull up a picture on Google. So I was trying to tell them exactly what it was and they found me one, which was awesome. And I would draw plays up. And when we would play like two on two or something with my buddies in the backyard, I would always be trying to draw plays up and what we were going to do and have a plan. And they didn't like that. Everybody just wanted to play, you know, they want to focus on that. But I, I've all, I was always that way. And I'm glad that I was, you know, because I developed a dream at a young age and it's pretty cool that I was able to chase it and and achieve a lot of things and, you know, get to continue to live my dream every day. So you go to Eastern Kentucky and you walk on uh, under Travis Ford there and, and one year and then it's just abort abort playing mission because you're just all in on coaching even at that point. It was. It was a tough decision. Um, I actually played a little bit as a walk-on. I wasn't a great player. I knew that. Um, worked really hard at it. Was, you know, knew the game, and I was more into that than I was actually trying to be the best player I could be, probably. The reason I walked on at Eastern Kentucky instead of going to play to NAI school or Division II school or Division III school was, was because I wanted to coach. And I knew Coach Ford had – a great pedigree, you know, he played for coach Patino um, and I wanted to coach. And I kind of shared that with him when I, when I was, you know, talking about being a preferred walk-on. And after my first year, I was coaching AAU, 10 and under AAU in the spring. And I can remember just thinking like, man, I'm getting ready to go back for summer workouts. Do I, do I really want to keep doing this or do I want to go ahead and start this journey? Cause again, I was planning on being a high school coach and I started, I decided I was going to go work camps. I st went and worked at the University of Florida when Coach Donovan was still there, um, worked a few others like that, and just decided that I, I wanted to coach. So I stepped away from playing. I volunteered at a high school. That's not even on, I don't think that's on my resume even, but I volunteered at high school, Madison Central, right there in Richmond, Kentucky. And I was assistant freshman coach. And then in the that following spring, I got to coach the freshman in an AAU tournament up in Lexington, and I was approached. I knew Happy Osborne and Jason Mays and some of those guys at Georgetown College, and they asked me if I ever thought about getting into college coaching. I never had, 
So I went to be a volunteer there, which was essentially glorified manager. And I fell in love with the aspect of college coaching, the recruiting, um, the fact that you, you're, you're coaching instead of teaching too, um, as far as a, an actual class. And I really wanted to be a college coach. So that was where the, the dream turned from high school coach to, to coaching at the college level at some level. The camp aspect of, of your early years um, and talking to so many guys like you, that that's, it's just such a, just such an underrated component of, of a being around the game, but just the networking and, and all of that. But this is, you know, this is 20 years ago. Um, how do you get to Florida? And obviously coach Donovan had some Kentucky ties and, and so on, but, but how many camps did you go to? Was it just like, you're just bouncing from one to the other. I know some guys when they're those limited earnings, it's like, Hey, just an easy way to make a couple hundred bucks in a week. Uh, but how important was that? Was that camp process for you? It's really important. I don't think a lot of guys do it as much as they used to. I think there's still guys that do it, but it was invaluable for me. Um, the way that I got got the opportunity to go to Florida was my my assistant high school coach, Roscoe Denny. He's one of these guys that knows everybody in the world. He's an older coach. He's, you know, probably upper 60s to 70 now, but he knew Donnie Jones, who's a head coach at Stetson, and he was associate head coach for Coach Donovan at the time at Florida. And he called him and was like, hey, I got a young guy. He'll do a great job for you. Can he come down and work your camp? You know, he'll drive down. So he got that set up and drove down to Gainesville. And the cool thing about that camp, that was the first big one that I ever worked, is they had a coach of the week, just like a player of the week. So I knew that coming in, and I worked relentlessly. Like every single thing I could do, I did. And I won the award at the end of the week and got a nice gear bag with Florida gear. And it just built my confidence a little bit, you know, and it showed me the value of, of going that extra mile, and people will notice that. And, and I did that. And, and another camp that really sticks out to me as growing as a young coach was a blue-chip camp um, that was pretty – pretty prevalent in Kentucky at the time. It was at Georgetown and you got to get your own team. You got to install your own actions and coach them however you wanted. And so that was really valuable as a 19, 20 year old to be able to have my own team and get a feel for calling my own plays with guys that are older guys, high school age kids. So the camps to me from like you touched on networking standpoint is huge. You get to, get to know a lot of guys, build relationships. But just that daily grind of getting up at, you know, 6.30 and not stopping until 10.30 at night, sleeping in the dorms, um, just building a work ethic. I think it's important for young guys. I encourage all of our student assistants to to go out and work camps in the summer and and build those relationships and just just embrace that grind of working. Two years there at Georgetown with Happy Osborne, who's a guy that, you know, non-basketball people outside of Kentucky probably never heard of the name, but certainly a guy that's just won a bajillion games uh, over his career. What did you learn from your time with, with Coach Osborne? I learned so much. He's, he's one of the most underappreciated coaches of all time probably because outside – I didn't realize this when I – because of my first – out of my first three jobs, two of them were in the Mid-South Conference at Georgetown College as a volunteer and then at Pikeville College. And I didn't realize NAI basketball was so underappreciated across the country. As I spread my wings and 
coached at a lot of different places. A lot of people know nothing about NAI, and it blows my mind. The basketball at that level is so good. And Happy Osborne built a program there. You know, he followed Jim Reed, who's a legendary coach, but just we won 30 games almost every year and competed to win championships. And with him, I learned the value. I learned how to how to be a coach, number one, at the collegiate level. But recruiting with him, he would allow me to drive him. I would drive him, you know, however long. It'd be an eight-hour He would allow trip. you to drive yeah. him. And I would, I would beg him. I'd be like, Coach, can I drive you tonight? He'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he would talk and and just talk about coaching and teach. And, and then watching how he recruited guys really instilled in me an early an idea of how to do it. You know, it, it was it was invaluable to be able to be around a guy like that. And I kind of cozied in there where I became his drive. Like I would drive him everywhere. It didn't matter where. Um, and it it was unbelievable because he's an elite recruiter. He's, an elite, he's this little bitty guy, little bitty chubby guy, unassuming, just looks like, I mean, you would never guess that he's such an elite recruiter. He just – He's a way about him where people love him. And he was a relentless worker. And I, I took so much from that time um, of how to navigate and recruit. I also built a lot of relationships because he knows everybody and we would be in the gym and he had introduced me to everybody. And um, it was, I could not have at any level, I really mean this. I could not have, if I was at Duke or Kentucky at that time and age, I would not have got more out of, my experience at Georgetown College as far as helping me understand how I could be successful in this profession. 2005, you go to Hawaii Pacific uh, as an assistant. I guess, firstly, how in the world do you end up from Georgetown, Kentucky to Honolulu? And secondly, I know you're chasing a dream, but there had to have been someone that tried to talk you out of living in Honolulu (laughs) for $8,000 a year. Yeah, this is a great story. So I'd been at Georgetown for a little while there. And um, there's a guy named Kurt Young, who was actually on my staff here for a couple of years as director of scouting and analytics. Um, He was an assistant at Georgetown at the time, and he was best friends with Kelly Wells. They grew up together. We're at Moorhead State together. And he was going to go be the top assistant. He was leaving Georgetown to be the top assistant with, with Kelly out there. It was Kelly's first year. And he asked, he asked me, he said, hey, would you be interested in, in going out there? It doesn't pay very much, you know. And I was like, man, it's a long way. I didn't realize Hawaii was so far until I actually went out there. So I'm an only child from London, Kentucky, um, really close to my parents. And I tell them, and my parents are like, no, you're not doing that. And I was 20, 21 at the time. And and I kind of – it was the first time my parents, I kind of said, yeah, I, I'm doing it. And they're like, well, how are you going to afford to live? I said, I'm going to take out a credit card. I didn't even know how a credit card worked at the time. But I was like, I know that I can put money on it and I can pay it back later so I can survive. So that's what I did. I ran a credit card up, $6,000. And that was just living. Hawaii was so expensive. And I go out there. I'm essentially the second assistant at 21 at Division II program. And I got to do everything, scouts, obviously recruit coach the dudes there was like I think on that team there were seven guys that were older than me and I was coaching these guys and I I was so young and hungry and a little bit stupid and I was coaching like 
like I was Rick Patino. I mean, I was coaching these guys so hard. I can't believe one of them didn't like punch me in the face at the time, but it was, um, it was an awesome experience. I was there for nine months and then Kelly got the Pikeville job and I went back with him back to Kentucky, but it was a huge leap. And, and I've lived my whole coaching profession off burn the boats. That's their, that's their mantra. And that was my first instance in coaching where I did, I burned the boats. I had no clue how I was going to survive other than the credit card. I had my wallet, didn't know anybody out there. It's five hour flight from LA. I had never been that far West. I'd never been to LA and I just went, you know, cause I, I believed in myself and I believed that I had to make some sacrifices in order to have a chance to be successful in this profession. Cause I wasn't a good player. I didn't come from a lineage of coaches. So I knew in order for me to be successful doing this, I had to make a sacrifice that most people weren't willing to, to make. And, you know, thankfully it paid off for me. Was there any point during those nine months? I mean, you're in Honolulu, so that, on some level that's a consolation prize, but was there any point during that time where you're like, what am I doing? Or was this just, this is it was, I'm young and dumb and this is awesome. And <laughs> let's just go. It was very, you know, it was very lonely. I lived with two guys. We had two GAs and I lived with them and they were both older than me too. And it was very lonely. I, um, I slept when I first got out there. So I took the cheapest room in our apartment and it was essentially an office and I could stretch out in this room and touch. And I'm not tall. I'm six one. You know, I could stretch my legs out and touch the walls with my head on one wall, my feet on the other. And I could spread my arms out and touch each sidewall. And that was my bedroom. And there was nothing on the walls. I bought an air mattress and it busted. So I slept on a, deflated air mattress for probably four months of it and then one of the GAs um Jared Plummer they call him Sumo he's a good friend of mine he found a mattress that somebody had deserted so we sprayed it down cleaned it and that's what I slept on um and that was all that was in the room so there was moments the other thing that was tough is the time difference so people would my friends back home because I was still young I was 21 I was you know just college age and my friends back home would be hanging out going out and it'd be like 11 30 or 12 on the east coast and I would just be going to practice it would be like six o'clock p.m and they'd be calling you know acting crazy like 21 year olds do and I'd be going into practice I'd be like man like I just really miss that but the basketball side I loved it it consumed my mind because at that point in coaching, I was, I could see that I had a chance. You know, I was making $8,000 as a second assistant at Hawaii Pacific, but I could dream a little bit of like, maybe I can really make this happen. And I really started to believe in my abilities as a coach because I was getting better at it. And the excitement carried me through the nine months, just, you know, the, the working, it was all work. It was, you know, there wasn't much else for me to do. I couldn't afford to do much else. So we, um, we, we made it work and I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I don't ever want to live in Hawaii. I don't think, but I did enjoy being there nine months. Who was more excited when Kelly Wells gets the job at Pikeville, Kentucky, and you go with him, who was more excited you were back in Kentucky, you or your parents? 
<laughs> I would say equal. I was thrilled. It, it worked out. My parents were excited. Again, I'm an only child. Um, so I've got three kids of my own now, so I can only imagine how they felt just having one. And he moves to Hawaii. So it was, it was awesome. I was now two hours away from my hometown. Um, I was making, I think I was making probably like 15,000. So I doubled my money basically. <laughs> and I had a dorm to live in. So it was free. I lived in a dorm on Pikeville's campus with a mattress. Yeah. I had a mattress, had a little like pleather couch. I had, um, so I, I loved being back close to home and I like being back in the mid South. I'd been there, understood it a little bit and Pikeville had been good, but they had struggled for about five or six years. So it was a rebuild. I've always, even as a coach now, I love a rebuild. Like, and I, I did, it was a challenge and we, we built it up. And when we first got there, Kelly did an incredible job. When we first got there, there was nothing really. I mean, me and him painted the locker room ourselves. Um, when I was there, I used to sweep the floor every day, wash the laundry, drive the vans. I did, I did every, did every scout recruited, um, so it was awesome that way. And we built a power. The year after I left, they won a national championship. And he um, he did just an incredible job. So it was, a, it was an awesome experience to kind of take a program that was kind of in the ashes and build it up to being the best, one of the best NAI programs in the country. You had earned uh... – you know, coach of the week award at that Florida camp once upon a time. And, but now at Pikeville, you're, you're getting recognized as one of the top NAI assistants in the country. Um, is that a, is that a nice plaque to hang on the wall or do you feel some sort of professional momentum that I'm gaining traction in what I'm doing and how I'm doing it? And this is, this is eventually going to lead to to bigger and better things for me. Yeah, at that age, I gained a lot of confidence from that. I think when you're young like that, the affirmation of being like somebody else thinks you're good, <laughs> it it gives you some confidence. And whether that's, you know, all, all these rankings are subjective, you know, but for somebody to look at me that way meant a lot to me when I was when I was that age. And I worked crazy hard to try to, because I, I knew in order to be a division, my, my dream at that point was to be a division one assistant. And I knew in order to get there, I had to become an elite recruiter. And I grew up in London, Kentucky, where there's no players. Actually, right now, it's really good. Reed Shepard's going to Kentucky. But there's um, – it's not like a hotbed. I'm not from Baltimore or Atlanta or, you know, one of these places where I had – meaningful recruiting connections. So I had to venture out and like form my own connections. And it was great for me because it, it still pays off. Now we recruit nationally because of a lot of connections that were formed that many years ago. So what I did was I tapped into the transfer market. I wanted to be the best NAI transfer program in the country. Um, and that helped us build it really quick. It helped us figure out, you know, upgrade our talent and helped us, helped us build it really quick. And it helped me to get some meaningful relationships in these major cities. You know, the DMV is an area we recruit like crazy right now. And those, a lot of those relationships were forged back then. And um, 
so I knew that I needed to be looked at as a great recruiter. And that's what I worked at. And while still, and I tell young guys this all the time, especially young minority guys in this profession, we, a lot of times were looked at as recruiters and not as much coaches. So while I was doing that, I wanted to, to really continue to work on my skills as a coach, whether it was individual improvement, scouting reports, um, whatever it may be. And I did that. And I never lost sight of that because the end goal was, you know, you want to be a head coach. That, that dream was so far off at that point. But I knew I wanted to do that one day. So I continued to work on that while trying to build a reputation as one of the better recruiters out there. Three years of Pikeville, and then that dream of being a D1 assistant uh, comes to fruition in 2009. You go to Coastal Carolina uh, under under Cliff Ellis. Uh, how does how does that relationship uh, is it born that uh, that you end up landing that job? Had never spoke to him in my life. And the funny part about all the almost every assistant job that I got, I never spoke to the head coach until they, until wow. they called me with some interest. So with that one, I had just taken a job. This isn't on my resume either. So we're, we're diving deep into some stuff you might not know. We, um, I just took in a job with Josh Newman at Arkansas Fort Smith. I left Pikeville. Arkansas Fort Smith had a huge tradition of a junior college program. They had just turned NCAA Division II. And I felt like to become a Division One assistant, I had to get into some NCAA level. Right. So I went to be his top assistant, and I was there for about two and a half weeks. And a good friend of mine who's assistant at College of Charleston, Brian Cloman, um, calls me, and he says, hey, would you have any interest in the Coastal Carolina job? I know Cliff Ellis real well, and um, he's looking for somebody who can really recruit junior college, can really recruit transfers. Um, especially in the South. So I was like, yeah. So Coach Ellis calls me, and I, I grew up watching Jefferson Pilot games when he was at Auburn. They were number one in the country with Chris Porter and all these guys. So it was like I was like starstruck because I had watched every game possible when I was a child. Like I said, I wanted to coach since I was eight. So I knew Cliff Ellis. He was Nason's coach of the year. And um, so we're having this conversation, and he says he's got some interest. And he says, would you be interested in coming to interview? And I said, yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. When do you want me there? So I went to my boss, Josh Newman at Fort Smith. I said, hey, I, this is crazy. I know I've only been here two and a half weeks. Can I go interview? He said, if you go interview, you better get the job. So essentially, he wasn't given his blessing. And he's a good friend of mine now, so I don't want, I don't want this to sound like – and I understand as a head coach now where he was coming from. Right. So I talked to my – girlfriend at the time who's my wife now I call her she's still in Pikeville and um we talked through it and she's like I don't know like it's really dangerous you know but you know I believe in you you know you could and I I thought about that night I wrote my letter of resignation that morning and I resigned from my job at Fort Smith so that's the second instance of burning the boats Hmm. and I told Coach Ellis that, and he said, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. I said, I've already done it. It's too late. <laughs> I drive 14 and a half hours from Fort Smith, Arkansas, to Conway, South Carolina. I interview for 24 hours. He makes me wait. I give him a hard time now, a really good friend. He made me wait like four days. And then I got the job. And it was just – so I guess at 25, I had, I had gotten that job, and it was, it was life-changing. And again, like I talked about Happy Osborne working for him, working for Cliff Ellis is your first Division One assistance job. 
was I again I couldn't have drawn up anything better with his experience the amount of pressure he put on me to to get guys because they had struggled in really bad I think they won 10 games his first year there he'd won 11 the second one but he's probably arguably the best rebuilder um or one of the best rebuilders in NCAA basketball history he did it at Clemson he did it at Auburn he did it at South Alabama before that and he was doing it at Coastal and and we did we flipped it around my two years there, I think we we're 56 and 13 won two championships and um he just taught me so much. He continues to. We're still – we talk all the time. We actually have to play each other twice a year now. Um, but, yeah, it was it was a dicey deal, though. I left a job, and that's being young and dumb. You know, I don't, I don't know if it, with a family I could have done that. But I, I did that, and it, it paid off um, in, in a major way. Did he res- – I know he was like, don't do that, don't do that. But on some level, do you think he – respected the move of I've quit my job. I'm coming to interview for you. I have no other choice here. I think, I think so. And I think that played in my favorite little bit too. I, I agree with that. Um, I think he saw a young guy with a lot of energy and a lot of confidence and he's willing to quit his job. I think it made it a little bit harder for him not to hire me. I would hope, <laughs> um, but I, I went in there too. And I talk to young guys about this all the time. I went in there with not an arrogance, but a high level of confidence. Because at the end of the day, when you go on these interviews um, to work for, especially a legend like him, he's going to win 900 and something games at least, Division One games. You have to have a little bit of a swagger and a confidence or he's not going to hire you. Right. You know, he wants somebody – he's won 10 LA. He's not used to losing. So he wants somebody that's going to help him fix it. And in order to convince him of that, you have to have some confidence in yourself. And I can remember telling him that I'm going to help you turn this thing around. And fortunately, I was able to make him believe that and then follow through with it. You know, we did. We turned it around and they went to multiple NCAA tournaments. And he's had he's had a really, really good tenure there that started with us getting it flipped around in his third year. Two years at Coastal, and then you go home to Eastern Kentucky with Jeff Neubauer. Uh, how, how does, uh, since you don't know him, I, if I'm reading the context clues right, you don't know him ahead of time, how do we end up back there? Well, this story is a legendary story. Um, so I did know him a little bit. I was finished uh, when he got the job at Eastern Kentucky when Coach Ford went to UMass. I was still a student there. It was the summer before, or it was the spring before the summer I left for Hawaii. And he asked me to come, not him, it was actually Mark Byington, who's the head coach at James Madison. He was assistant there at the time for a little while. And they were short on camp workers, so they asked, they knew that I was a coach and I was on campus there, and I knew all the players were really close. So they asked me about work camp, so I came to work camp, and Coach Neubauer never really spoke to me. He didn't really know me. So when I was out at Hawaii, I was on the road recruiting. We only got to come recruit in Hawaii during the spring to the mainland. So we, I flew in. I was on the road for three straight weeks, low budget, staying at the worst hotels, you can, whatever. Sure. So, but I came up with this, like, deal where I was going to wear flip-flops to recruit because it was Hawaii, right? Like, creative. You know, I thought it was at the time. I was young probably 
Probably not. I mean, I don't know. But anyway, I did it. So he tells us this. I'm buddies with these guys, Josh Merkel, who's who's the head coach at Randolph-Macon. He's won national championship. And a, a couple other guys, he tells them, he says, that Richie Rye that worked our camp, he was wearing flip-flops. I would never, I would never hire him or let it go, whatever. So, so anyway, we, I know this story. He never says this to me, but he told them that. And I get, you know, we talk about the job. I'm at Coastal and I'm from London, Kentucky, which is 40 minutes from Richmond, Kentucky. And I get a chance to go back home. My wife, I'm married at the time now. She's from Belfry, um, Pikeville area. So I'm like, man, this is going to be the top assistant, make a little bit more money. And I really, at the time, I was like, man, maybe one of these days I could be the head coach there, you know? And that was, that was the thing. So I went back and got it. And really, we, we had an unbelievable class. And when I got there, we bought a house for the first time. And I, did, I, I was planning on being at Eastern Kentucky for the long haul. Sure. And coaching changes. Obviously, I wasn't. I was there for one year. But it kind of unfolded, you know, when I, when I left Coastal. We really enjoyed it down there. But the opportunity to come back home and – come back to where I graduated from and close to our families, I took it. But as you know, we were only there for a year. And then it's off to UAB. Um, I guess just from a general career trajectory, and, and there's all kinds of reasons why guys leave jobs and, and look for new jobs. And sometimes it's out of your control if your head coach loses a job or leaves a job. Uh, but, but just you have been a – two years, basically, sometimes one year, and then you're on, on to the next step and see guys in your position that do that when you're trying to climb the ladder, some guys for their own reasons, kind of just camp out and I'll be at the same place for six or seven years. Uh, what is there sort of a theme for you or, or, or a mission statement, I guess, professionally that, that led you to be, I'll be here for a couple of years and move on. Was that purposeful or was it just more a matter of, of circumstance? I'm a big believer in this is for young coaches, especially as you're trying to climb the ladder in this profession is you, you want to, you want to limit your lateral movements. You don't want to, you know, jump from job to job, but if you have a chance to go up a level to another notch, I think as long as that situation fits you, you always want to explore that and, and potentially do it. And that's what I always did. I never took a lateral move. Um, you know, from Coastal Carolina to Eastern Kentucky. At the time, Coastal was in the the Big South, so it was kind of similar. But I was going from the third assistant to be the top assistant. And then – And home. I'm yeah, and home. Yeah. And UAB is such a storied tradition. Um, they broke my heart when I was a kid and they upset Kentucky in the NCAA tournament. So I had so much respect for the job. And then – Jared Hass, coming from North Carolina with Coach Williams, um, played at Kansas. I could remember growing up watching him play. And I knew that was a game changer for me in terms of accelerating my progression because of who he was, his pedigree, the job, what it was. It was right in my wheelhouse from a recruiting standpoint. Um, I was actually – I was in New Orleans for the Final Four and Mike Ellis used to run Villa 7. I'd got to know him. Um, he runs next chair now. He used to be 
an athletic, you know, in the athletic administration at VCU in Minnesota. He calls, he calls me. He's like, Hey man, um, you may be getting a call. It's going to surprise you here and here in a couple hours or something. No, it was the next day. So I had, um, I woke up to a message from Jared Hass. never spoke to him in my life. I knew who he was. He said, Hey, he introduced himself, said, I've heard your guy can really recruit in the South, you know, again, junior college and, and transfers. I, you know, that was something he had never, he had only recruited like five-star dudes, like pros, you know, all this stuff. So he needed like a grinder type guy that could find some of these guys in the cracks um, that had a lot of relationships and those, because at UAB, you need some of that. And I interviewed with him twice. He gave me, he offered me the job on Sunday of the final four. I was shocked. And I accepted it immediately. It was tough, though, because my wife was used to being home. She was close to her family. But I got an unbelievable wife. She's my best friend in the world. And she she was excited for me. And, and we took off. And it was Jared Hess, you know, is one of the best human beings of all time in any profession, not just coaching in anything. So it made that transition really easy for my wife and me. And it was, it ended up being the perfect marriage. We were, you know, a little bit, we were different, but similar in some ways, similar how we treat people, similar about our values and what we care about, but very different in our backgrounds. I had, you know, not that long ago, I was a volunteer sweeping floors and doing all this. He was an all big 12 player and he'd only been at Kansas and Carolina. Um, So it was, it was really cool. And it, it ended up a bond and a friendship, um, that obviously is still to this day very strong. He's at Stanford now. I'm at South Alabama. We're still very different in a lot of ways, um, but we're really close and great friends. I guess in terms of as, as storied of a tradition as, as UAB has, when you have the opportunity two years later to go to Clemson in the ACC, that that's, that's still that that upward trajectory. That had to have been one with, uh, with Brad Brownell, not one to uh, – wasn't much thought process, I imagine, right? No, I'll never forget when the day that he offered me an opportunity to interview. It was um, it was so surreal for me because I'm a basketball junkie, and you know we already talked about when I was a kid. I grew up watching ACC basketball, and to me, the ACC. I know you got analytics, and you got it goes back and forth a little bit, whatever. But the ACC is a mecca of hoops to me. Um, like the SEC is the mecca of football. You can argue however you want to do it, like whatever. But so I had watched all these games and just the lure of like, wow, I could really have an opportunity to be on a coaching staff in the ACC. I'd never, when I was at Hawaii and Pikeville and Georgetown, I never dreamed that in a million years that would happen. So what had happened was Earl Grant got the College of Charleston job late. So this, we were in August. And um, I got a call, and I never talked to Brad Brownell either. And Jeff Neubauer, who I worked for at Eastern Kentucky, is really good friends with him. And and Coach Brownell, his big thing with assistants is he wants well-rounded guys. He wants guys that are great recruiters. He wants guys that can really coach the game. Obviously, he wants great people. And I really fit that mold for him. Um, and I had to show him that. When I went to interview, he got me on the whiteboard for about an hour and a half, two hours. And I was up there and I was comfortable with that because, like I said, I've always worked on being a 
a coach. And he knew I had some recruiting teeth from what I'd already done at UAB and what I'd done at every stop I'd been at. So he offered me the job and I almost lost. I can remember calling my wife. I was in tears. Just, we just had our first son too. We'd been trying to have a baby for a long time. We just had Reese. He's four months old, I think. And, and we were going to Clemson. It was just, it was just so surreal. And every moment of that first year that I was there, like I, I had the Louisville scout and I'm looking down at Rick Patino, who I grew up idolizing and yelling out what they're doing. And I, it just, you know, you had coach K, you had Bayheim, you had coach Williams, you had just, it was just the who's who of for a junkie like me, like that loves hoops and is just. And forget the who's who, but as that basketball fan, going to Cameron Indoor and going to the Carrier Dome and going to the Dean Dome. I mean, that just had to be – Oh, it's the best. Yeah. I, I ate up every ounce of it, just every <laughs> single one, the shoot-arounds, the, the pregame warm-ups. Just it, – it gives me chills sitting here thinking about it right now, um, that first year. The second year I settled in, it wasn't as much just like – I wasn't as awestruck, but I still was at times um, – when, when we went to Cameron that that uh, our second year, this is a great story, but we went to Cameron. Jahil Okafor is the year they won it. Jahil Okafor just got hurt against Carolina. So we get there, and it's like, he's not going to play. Um, he's hurt. So we're like, hey, man, we were playing really well at the time, um, and we're fighting for a spot. We're trying to get a bid, you know. And um, we go out there, and we're like, man, we got a chance to beat these dudes. Like, without Okafor, he's the best player in the country. And we come out, and that place is rocking. And Kay is getting a crowd up. You know, he stands up sometimes. And it is – my the floor is shaking, and they just drilled us. Probably the best game they played all year. Justice Winslow was incredible. Quinn Cook, all those guys. So, I had always had a dream of this – like, two of my dreams – there's a few others, but was Dick Vitale would do one of my games – and I would get to coach in Madison Square Garden. That was two things that I, when I was all the way from where I start. So Dick Vitale did the game. So as soon as I get home, we got drilled. I did. I had already watched it on my computer, but I wanted to watch. I was like, Dick Vitale did it. So I get home, my wife had DVR'd it. And he says, he's, he's, he's doing his whole bit, you know how he does. And he says, this is the most in however many years that I've ever seen Mike Krzyzewski fired up. It's the most emotion. Like, and I was like, dude, he picked the one game we could have maybe had a chance to win. And Coach K decides to just lose his mind. Um, but it, it was funny. But yeah, that ACC experience was was second to none. 2016, uh, Nickel State comes open. You're 33 years old. And I guess the part that, that struck me about it was, was sort of your ongoing conversations with Coach Brownell about about taking that job. Um, and I mean, I think when you're a head coach, especially at, at the high level, you know, in the ACC, you've got assistant coaches, you know, you hire them to eventually one day send them on their way as they graduate to be their own head coach. But you're 33. I mean, in the big picture, you're, you're a kid still trying to, trying to get that, uh, that head spot. Um, did he feel like you were ready? I mean, was it was it uh, you trying to talk him into the fact you were ready? Uh, how did those conversations go uh, before 
ultimately you land at Pickles. He felt like I was ready for sure. Um, but he point blank told me not to take the job. <laughs> and he would tell you that if he was on here. Um, because, you know, as I tell this, I'll go into the job a little bit, but he, you know, one thing coach, cause I used to, again, I had a high level of confidence, um, probably way too much. I was young and dumb and I very naive in a lot of ways, probably of how hard being a head coach is. And he used to tell me all the time, like, Hey man, you better be careful. You know, you, once you become a head coach, you want to be a head coach forever. Like you're only 30, like whatever. So he said all the time, but when this job came about, here's, here's how it happened. The year before I'd interviewed at Northern Kentucky, the finalists were me, John Brannon and Laval Jordan. And I thought I was going to get the job. I really did. Um, we, we went to Highland Heights there and it was a one day deal with all of us there. I thought I was going to get it. I was crushed when I didn't get it. And I went back to Clemson. So after the year, I was so hungry to be a head coach. And Nickel State, I see it on Twitter. I'm on Twitter 24-7. So I see it on Twitter. And I knew it was Division One. I. I had no clue what state it was in. I had no clue what league it was in. And, I'm again, I'm a hoops guy. Like, I feel like I would not – so I get on the directory. I'm just sitting there in our living room at home with my wife, my son. And I get on their directory, and their compliance guy was a guy named Andrew Kearney. He's a chief deputy AD there now, who I had recruited at Hawaii Pacific. And he ended up going to D2 in Michigan or something, but he's a good player. And um, so I, I find his number from another guy that I knew would have it. And I call him. I say, hey, man, like, I would – I'd love an opportunity to talk to you guys about the job. And he thought I was joking. He was like, what? Like you're at Clemson. Why would you, why would you do that? And I was like, no, I'm serious. I, you know, so he goes to his boss, Rob Bernardi and tells him it. So Rob Bernardi, he's a great guy calls me and he says, Hey man, we're just going to hire a local guy, you know, like a Louisiana person with ties here that's what this job's all about and I told him I said listen if you want to keep doing what you're doing then you'll make that hire if you want to change it then you'll give me a chance to come down there and talk to you <laughs> I said it real airy. like yeah I didn't have anything to lose but what was he gonna say you know right. I'll just go and it caught him off guard so he calls me back the next day and he's like hey you know we would be interested in talking to you so I go tell coach B hey you know I'm a, and he's like why would you do that and then another one, I call Shaka Smart, who's a friend of mine. I call him and I say, what do you, you know, it's kind of a mentor of mine. I'd always looked up to him and built a relationship with him. He's like, you'll get something better than that. That was the common theme with people. And I knew like who I was as a coach. We just went through this, this whole interview here, me and you've been talking. I came from the trenches of like had no connections of anything. So I'm like, this is division one head coaching job. There's 300 and some odd of these jobs. So I go down there. My wife goes with me. She's, we come in. We're in the swamps. It's, it's like swamp. Like there's swamps on each side of the road. We drove from Clemson to Thibodeau, Louisiana. We get there. We meet with them. Um, the job pays $85,000, I think, eighty dollars to $85,000 less than what I was making. There's a $1,000 recruiting budget. It's not made up. $1,000. The whole recruiting budget, $1,000. They hadn't had a, they hadn't, they had one winning season with the last, I think, 
17 years. Um, facilities are are not great, <laughs> and that's putting it nicely. You can't even buy enough stamps for one thousand dollars. No, it, it was one thousand dollars. I still have the document that says one thousand dollars. So at the end of the interview, um, Rob Bernardi asked me, "He's like, why in the world would you want this job?" You know, because I was coming from Clemson, and I said, "Because I believe that we can win here." And he believed it, so he offered me the job. And I go back, and I've got a couple of days. My wife doesn't want to do it, you know. And I told you, my wife's the best person in the world. She didn't want to do it. And we're talking about it, and um, whatever. So I get a call. This is funny too. I get a call the next day from Bruce Pearl, who's now, you know, we became became friends. Now, at the time, I didn't know him either. I knew who he was. Obviously, he's at Auburn. And he wants to talk to him about his assistant spot. I think it was when Todd left. I think Todd Golden had left and went to San Francisco at the time. And so I'm really intrigued by it. You know, I love it at Clemson, you know, so I I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. So I had these things going on. And I go to an event. It was in April, a Springer deal. I look around. At all the coaches, I'm like, you know how hard it is to be a Division One head coach? I step out of the gym. I call Jess. I say, I'm going to do it. And she's, like, in tears. You know, she grew to love Thibodeau, though. I will say that. She grew to really like it there. And we had an awesome two years and loved it. But I took it and just completely burned the boats. Nobody thought that we could get it turned around. I ended up – I was I was head coach. I was part-time basketball head coach, full-time fundraiser. We raised over 300 grand there, upgraded the facilities, got a real recruiting budget where we could go out and recruit. Um, and we won the regular season in year two. And um, it's, it's a really proud thing for me because they, it's continued success. Austin Clanch, who was, who was my first hire, one of my best friends in the world, has continued to win there. And it's a program that people recognize now as successful. And we started that. We got it back to where – or got it to where it needed to be. So I'm so glad that I took a chance, bet on myself. And I'm so glad my wife supported me enough to actually do it. And it was it was really – it was a bold move looking back now. But at the time, it really made sense to me because I got to be a head coach at the Division One level, something I didn't ever think I would be able to accomplish. My last question for you, uh, for those young coaches out there just starting their career that one day want to be a Division One head coach, uh, what is the, what's the best piece of advice you can pass along? Relentless in your approach. Relentless. No matter what you're doing, whether it's whatever your job is, be relentless in your approach to be the absolute best you can be. And in turn, people notice – that relentless approach and that helps you to build meaningful relationships and it helps you to be looked at in a light of somebody that you have to have with you that was something I always wanted to be I wanted the head coaches that I worked for to look at me in a way like he's irreplaceable like I have to have him um and that was and that's something I take a lot of pride in is all the guys that I worked for they either got better jobs or they got extensions. Um, and as an assistant, I think that's your best calling card. A lot of guys talk about how many ranked guys they've signed, how many 
this and that, how many scouts and whatever. The end of the day, the the tell all is what did what were you able to help your boss accomplish? And all those guys, whether it's Jared Haskins to Stanford, Coach Brownell going to the Sweet 16 and getting a huge extension, Coach Neubauer going to Fordham, Coach Ellis being able to continue his, you know, the back end of his career to be able to coach as long as he wants to, you know, till he retires. Those things were so important to me. And I think as a young guy, you lose focus sometimes and you become more engulfed with like how you're looked at. Are you ranked on this list? Are you this? Are you that? At the end of the day, it's what you can do for the guy that trusted you enough to give you an opportunity. And I always try to keep focus on that. But build those meaningful relationships. Relentlessly pursue your dreams. Don't let anybody ever tell you you can't do it. Because there's plenty of people that told me that I couldn't ever be a college coach, period. That I was, you know, better suited just to be a high school coach in Kentucky. Um, and then when I was an NAI guy, I couldn't be a Division One guy. And when I was an assistant, I couldn't be a head coach. Don't let anybody ever tell you can't do something because you can. That's the beauty of our profession. Your life can change in one year. You know, if you work hard enough at it, you treat people the right way, you honor the game the way it's supposed to be honored, there's nothing you can't accomplish. And the other thing, any young guys out there listening, don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm easy to find on Twitter. Um, hit, hit me up. And I'm always willing to take time to help guys because I, I want – I want as many guys to that, especially that come from a background like me, to be successful in this profession. And it's attainable if you if you do those things I just talked about and and you just believe in yourself. There's nothing you can't accomplish. It's the beauty of coaching basketball. Thanks to Coach Riley for joining me. Next up for Riley and his South Alabama Jaguars, a trip to Alabama AM on December 12th. A new episode of Coaching Origins comes out every Friday morning, and if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. And while you're there, leave us a comment or a five-star review if you think we've earned it. Thanks for listening to Coaching Origins.